We did Ariel Castro, and we did uh, we talked about movies, and uh, essentially just true crime movies that we've seen recently, or we were excited that were coming out. And that was right before Thanksgiving, and now it's it's January twenty fifth. It's like a, it's a new year, it's a new decade, it's like <laughs> a new season for us. And since we recorded last, we actually launched our podcast. Yay! So for those of you out there who have been supporting us in the last week, which is amazing. I can't believe it's only been a week. But, um, you know, I feel like we're doing pretty good. I feel like we sound pretty good. I've gotten over my stage fright. Uh, I had a little, you know, moment or two where I was like, oh, my God, people know me a little too much. Did I offend anybody? Um, But you know what? I'm just going to roll with it. I'm just going to pretend like nobody's really listening and just... Say what I want and enjoy. Enjoy. I don't know about saying what you want, but... I can say what I want in ways that don't offend people. Yeah, 100%. I've gotten pretty yes. good at that working in a corporate environment. <laughs> you know, I deliver a really kind message. That's true. Uh, or I deliver, I deliver it in a kind way, but it might not it be might a not kind. It might not be a kind message. No. no but it's, it's true. Always constructive. It's, all, it's professional. That's absolutely right. Yes. Nobody's going to fire me for speaking my mind. <laughs> no. So, uh, so Scarlettos, we're super excited that we... We actually have real fans that we can call Scarlettos, and we're excited that you are here uh, listening to us. You're back with us now, and we're super excited to jump into. Uh, we're not we're not really doing seasons, but it's it's kind of a it's kind of like a new season. It's a new start for us. Yeah, I feel like the before was it was a it was a pilot, it was a test period, and now here we go. We're really doing it, and we're trying to take off and really make something of this. Yep, and I think we've hit our stride. You're gonna have a um, you know a, hear a lot of different things from us. I think that you know we've gotten our voice figured out, and thank goodness we have gotten our technology figured out, <laughs> so we sound better. And again, we apologize for earlier episodes where we were a little rough. Um, oh yeah, for sure. Uh, but I feel like that we've gotten to a different more comfortable and more professional place. I think so, so too. Yeah. And, and, and hey, you know, if not, well, we're here anyway, so. We're here to entertain. Really, that's what this is all about, right? <laughs> Even if it's just ourselves. And <laughs> 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 we entertain each other, that's for sure. All right, Sonia, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about the Boston Strangler and Albert DeSalvo. And the reason I say those two th- names are you know split them up yeah because a lot of people even though there's some pretty strong evidence these days to suggest that Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler a lot of people still disagree with that so out of respect for those people and also not to blow it you know the there is a bit of a surprise ending here um and certainly the way this worked out you know was different than um, most had ever seen you know it's in the 60s um 
DeSalvo confessed to being the Boston Strangler. He said he raped and murdered 13 women in Boston between 1962 and 1964, um, and most of whom were elderly and alone. Um, he was killed in prison in 73 after being sentenced to life, not for this crime. Uh, no one actually ever tried DeSalvo for the Boston murders. So that is a little summary of what we'll be discussing. All right, so we are going to, we're going to start Specifically talking about the Boston Strangler murders. Yes. Okay. Specifically perfect. the victims. So we'll okay, go through the perfect. list of victims. We'll talk a little bit about the timeline at which they were found, um, which is likely in the order they were killed as well. But it's a tricky one because a couple of these people were found on exactly the same day. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, the Boston Strangler, if... Whether without Albert DeSalvo, you know, the Boston Strangler was prolific. He was successful in his attempts for the most part. It was amazing how, how he was a con man. Yeah. Regardless, again, of if it wasn't DeSalvo, whoever it was could get themselves into a woman's apartment when she was alone and talk her into doing things that she may or may not have wanted to do, but he was successful a lot of the times. Um, you know, the 13 victims that we're talking about for the Boston Strangler, um, you know, that was a really big deal for Boston. Everybody was very, very scared um, by that. And, you know, every, the city was pretty much on lockdown. They were saying that women were getting dogs and the locksmiths were super busy. And, you know, it was it was kind of amazing. But, you know, for if you look at the timeline for these victims, it was a really tight timeline. I mean, it started in, in 1962. Uh-huh. It started in 62 and ended in 64, uh, early 64. And it, the Boston Strangler is credited, I guess you could say, as being America's first true serial killer. And what really made him unique is that he, as Sonia said, most of his victims were older women, some elderly, uh, that a lot of times lived alone, and in the more well-to-do areas of Boston, not really in, you know, your inner cities or your uh, lower income areas, areas where you might expect higher crime rates. This was, these were attacks on people and in places that you would not expect to see that in any community. Yeah. I mean, one of these victims were, they were actually murdered. If I'm not mistaken, it was the last victim. She didn't live that far from the state to the state house, you know? Uh -huh. So, I mean, very much, you know, the central part of Boston. All right. So we'll jump into the first victim. Uh, 55-year-old Anna Slessers was found on June 14th, 1962. Uh, the, what would become the Strangler's M.O. Uh, was indicative on Slessers. She was found in her bed with a cord wrapped around her blue house coat fashioned in a bow, which was like the Strangler's signature. He always left a bow in whatever, using whatever tool he used to strangle his victims. Uh, and when she was found, it was by her son, Juris, who I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and he thought that she committed suicide when he found her. Which, which is strange. <laughs> well, it's, it's a strange way to commit suicide based on the way that she was found, but because she was also tied up and she was nude and her home was ransacked, 
but very few valuables were actually taken. So a couple things I want to unpack there. One, just a weird thing to think based on what you walk into, your nude mother with a ransacked home. But also, how tragic to think that your mom killed herself. It's one thing, it's, it's bad enough to see that she's been murdered, but suicide is, adds another layer to it, I feel like. Yeah, I uh, I think in this instance with the with Anna and as the being the first victim, if I'm not mistaken, she wasn't found with it was her uh, robe, essentially the tie that tied her robe, and then I think she was actually strangled with some kind of cord. Yes, yeah, exactly. So to your point, I'm not sure how she would have done all that to herself. Right. And then I also thought that she was dragged from the one of the other rooms into the bathroom or into the threshold, and in which case she certainly couldn't have done that to herself. No, I thought that was someone else, but it might have been Anna also. You'll find that the, the Strangler did a lot of... He repeated his actions frequently and had the same kind of MO over and over again. So it became, at least seemed clear to detectives that they were looking at the same person. And I think we can discuss later whether or not it was always the same person or if maybe there were a couple copycats involved. Right. All right. So that's June 14th, 1962. June 28th, which is 14 days later, we find Mary Mullins uh, murdered in her home. She's 85 years old. Yeah. Which is, first off, all of these people, you know, the reason that he chose them Clearly was because they were older, vulnerable. Right. They lived alone. Uh, you know, he took advantage of the opportunity. Uh, but as we go through these, I think I also want to call out here that he, if he had to catch them when they were alone, because even though they lived alone, like, you know, Anna Slesser's son was coming over, right. you know, within whatever time frame to uh -huh. pick her up. That this murder could have happened during that time, um, you know, and the murderer would have been caught. So he must have had knowledge of when she'd be alone. He he clearly had been taking, looking at these victims, figuring out who he was gonna, you know, try this sort of, you know, either breaking into their apartment, um, even though there was no evidence of breaking in, um, or getting into the apartment by conning them in some way. He knew he was gonna have time, and he knew how much time he was gonna have. Right. So, uh, do you have other details? Uh, I don't. I don't either, actually. <laughs> uh, she was found murdered in her home. Yeah, she was also tied, uh, it seems like, by a cord or a rope. I agree. Mary Mullen's the one I didn't find a whole lot of information about. Yeah, no. I uh, I think it's pretty much consistent across the board. I mean, what what's consistent that you'll see with all of these victims is, for the most part, they were strangled. Um, but not necessarily with the cords or whatever was found around their neck. Most of the time, they were strangled by hand, and then the cord went around their neck and was tied in a big bow, right. either right before they died or post-mortem. So it really had nothing to do with their death. Um, you know, it was more about, you know, the strangling of them with whoever strangled them in their hands, which is a really intimate way to die or a way to kill someone. Yeah. You know, you're looking right at them. It's not easy. It takes a long time. It takes strength, too. It does, and, and there are some, there's a lot of similarities. Most of them are extremely similar, but there are some unique characteristics, unique characteristics to each of the victims that I'll get into as we get to them. But most of them, as Sonia was describing, were found uh, strangled by hand, and then the, the signature was the cord or something wrapped around the neck in a bow, tied up in a bow. And also, most of the victims 
were sexually assaulted in one way or the other. Yes. Um, and I'm actually going to take this opportunity to sidebar for just a second. Um, we, we didn't do our disclaimer, so I'm going to do our giver disclaimer right now that, of course, we talk about some very sensitive topics, some uh, violence, of course, we're already getting into. We're also about to get into some de uh, descriptions of sexual assault and sexual violence. So uh, this is not for kids. I would say our show is usually a PG-13 rated show. Uh, but some of, some of our episodes get a little more explicit. So when you are listening or when you see us on your favorite podcast channel, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, you might see a, a little explicit sign next to certain episodes. It's not because we're trying to be gratuitous or we're dropping F-bombs here and there, though it might come out periodically. Uh, it's really just more of an added warning that we don't think it's the it's too appropriate for young kids, but we try to keep everything PG-13. We try. I mean, in as much as we can. Right. And a lot of our source material, you know, I base a lot of what I, you know, found, you know, either with Wikipedia or biography.com mm -hmm. or a multitude of documentaries out there that shared a lot of this same information. So feel free to watch those. I didn't find any one of them that was, you know, better than the other. Um, some had more information, but it's pretty much the same information out there. It's, it happened a long time ago, so there was a long time for them to get this information together. But even recently, in 2013, mm -hmm. they found, had some new discoveries. So, you know, yes. it's progressed over the years. Inter it interesting, to say the least. So with all of that said, uh, getting into a little more detail about the next, next two victims. Uh, first one is 68-year-old Nina Nichols. Uh, again, her home seemed to be robbed, but there wasn't much taken. But what made this one a little bit different is that she was sexually assaulted with a wine bottle uh, stuck into her vagina. This, so I'm going to take a step back here because yeah. I want to make sure we're clear about this timeline. June 14th, 1962, uh -huh. we find Anna Slessers. She's 55. Thursday, which is the following Thursday... Uh, June 28th, we find Mary Mullins. She's two weeks later. Oh, sorry. Two weeks later. Correct. Um, two days later, mm -hmm. this is when we find Nina Nichols. So this is escalating. You know, it started two weeks, got Mary Mullins. Now two days, you have Nina Nichols. Not only do you have Tina, Nina, Nina Nichols on June 30th, but also Helen Blake, 65 years old. This is, it's, it's escalating. It's escalating quickly. What's happening during these crimes uh, is escalating. He is taking more time with them. He is um, raping them, doing a variety of things to their bodies when they are not only alive but dead um, and really having his way with them. Uh, in particular, Helen Blake's murder was especially gruesome. Um, she suffered some severe lacerations to her vagina and her anus. Um, so God bless these poor ladies and what they went through. And, um, you know, it, it, again, it was escalating as you would expect for a person who was committing these kinds of crimes. It's a typical serial killer mentality. You know, once you get the taste, it's hard to, um, you know, sort of stop. And I think this is the first one that happened outside of Boston. It was in a Boston suburb of Lynn, it's called. Uh, and to Sonia's point, this escalated beyond what we had seen before. 
uh, that was more vicious and violent and sexual in nature. Uh, something else that I thought was interesting, just a, a strange detail, is that her bra was found covering her face over her head when she was found dead. So, new characteristics happening, and the Strangler's victims are now spreading out outside of just the city of Boston. Do you... So, we don't know if these two these two victims, Nina Nichols or Helen Blake, they were killed on the same day, right. but they were found on the same day. Correct. Do you know the proximity in which they lived? I mean, would you have had to go far to get from one to the other? Is was there anything to give us an idea of what which one was killed beforehand or so something that I heard that now DeSalvo and we'll get to him later uh, said that he he was uh, arrested for what I think were referred to as the green suit crimes the green uh, man crimes the green ma man crimes That's and, accurate. and and what he said at that time was there probably wasn't a house or apartment in Boston he had not tried to walk to to get inside. Now, this was at least far enough away that he would have had to drive. And so, essentially what I took, and I could be wrong, this is just how I was imagining it in my head, is he tried to keep his victims in a relatively close area. He wasn't going door-to-door -door killing neighbors, per se, but they were all within almost like walking maybe a few mile distance. And were they near his house, or was he outside of that area? That's a good question. I don't know for sure. I know we know his address. We'll have to look it up. Yeah. Fans, look it up. Take a, take a <laughs> look. I'm sure there's a... I mean, this was probably one of the most, I hate to say popular, but certainly famous or infamous crimes that's happened in Boston to date. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. Probably with the exception of the Boston Marathon, but, you know, that's a bit of... That's a different crime. But still, you know, a really a big deal for Boston, and so there's a lot of information out there. Yeah, definitely. And even though there's a lot of information, what they couldn't find in any of these crime scenes was any evidence, you know, of the person who committed the crime. Um, until later, we find right. a little more information. And also remember, for everybody, I'm sure that everybody knows this who's listening, um, you know, DNA, you know, that kind of evidence really wasn't... Um, you know, popular until much, much later. They may have been able to identify blood type if they would have found blood, but they didn't. So not a lot of, you know, information out there. And since it looks like most of these women let the Boston Strangler in, um, you know, on their own free will, there was, you know, the only ransacking that happened, to your point, Brittany, was... It, it appeared, I don't know why he would ransack, or she, or whoever, you know, if we're, if we're saying we're, we're not mm -hmm. talking about that yet. You know, why would you ransack the place and not take anything? I mean, there was jewelry found behind, there was lots of things, so what were you ransacking for? Unless you were just looking for something to wrap around their neck to tie a bow. Yeah, I actually took it as more of, they were, he was just ransacking to set the stage as though it was intended to be a burglary that went bad, as opposed to the explicit intent just to murder which is really what it was i guess but wouldn't you think he'd take something then just to sh kind of prove the point that it was a burglary he was he was known as a and e guy though everybody i mean he was like a petty criminal you, yeah that's how I he mean, started i mean when you see the if it's detect, a salvo yeah when you see people talk about you know the salvo it's kind of entertaining to hear them talk because they're surprised that he achieved anything they were like <laughs> i'm surprised like i was successful at anything because he seemed like such a knickknack you know i mean that's true he was like an accidental success and unfortunately you know, as we find later, you know, potentially an accidental success at that murder. Yeah, uh, very possible. So it was at this point, which 
I still can't wrap my head around, at least in this day and age, and we've talked about this before, but it was at this point that on the news and in the newspapers, women were advised to lock their doors. Lock your doors. <laughs> Don't let strangers in. It's okay to say no. And I've actually, I've heard this on more than one occasion, particularly with Americans, that Americans will knowingly put themselves in danger if it means not offending another person. And that statistic is almost double for, double for women than it is men. I believe that's true. Yeah. Women yeah. Are, are, there was like a study. Uh, Don't break the microphone. Sorry. I know. Sorry. I got excited. <laughs> um, there was a study, you know, about, you know, if someone trying not to offend and, you know, it, it was a really interesting study about how men are less likely than women are. And, you know, it was, it was pretty fascinating, but you know, we are trusting souls, you know, we, I think women more than men will try to be look on the positive side about most people, you know, maybe it's cause we give birth to people. So, and the other thing that's weird about this case I find is that when, when we'll continue to go through the victims cause there's 13 total. When you hear people talk about the victims, they guarantee, for the most part, that these women would have never opened the door hmm. for anyone. The one woman had curlers in her hair. <laughs> Travesty to open the door and let some man see you in your curlers. I'm like, that's your basis for him. Because clearly she let him in. Yeah, of course. And the other woman was, you know, didn't have her dentures in. And she was an elegant woman and there's no way she's going to be seen like that. She did yep. open the door. Uh-huh. So he was very persuasive. I don't know what he told him, and I don't know if he gauged what he was going to tell them on the situation or the person. Um, and we know he studied because we had to figure out when people were going to be home yeah. alone uh -huh. and had time. So, uh, in, in as we're seeing with some of these women, he took some time. You know, he it was not, you know, it was not fast, yes. unfortunately. And um, even, you know, in the way that he, he took his time after the fact and he you know, positioned them in a way that was humiliating to them and very undignified so that when the police would walk in the door and find them, you know, they were seeing a sight that, you know, from what I, from what I heard from a lot of the documentaries mm -hmm. was just something that the officers had never seen before and was just really horrific. Well, and I think that speaks to the next victim on August 19th, 1962, Ida Erga was found uh, in Boston's West End, and she was positioned on the floor, on her back. Her buttocks was propped up under a pillow, and her legs were propped up on chairs. So I want to call that out. <clears throat> I mean, I don't want anybody to visualize this, but think it's hard not to. She's seventy-five. Oy. So my mom's eighty-five. Yeah. So right. Think about somebody who's 75 years old or older uh -huh. and, and this site. Think about, you know, I mean, it's just tragic and horrible. And the idea that someone would want to do the things that they did to this poor woman, kill her, rape her, and then position her in a way that further humiliated her. It's just really, really, really sad. It's really sad. And what that says to me about a person who would do that is they are full of rape. They are hate. They are full of rage. Um, they wanted to punish these people. Mm -hmm. They wanted to show their, you know, that how powerful they were. I don't even know if it was sexual at the beginning. It became sexual later. Um, and by the way, these ladies are older, older ladies. So, you know, 
we all know in, in sexual assault and rape situations, it's really rarely about sex and it's more about power. Right. But it must have become about, you know, sexual, you know, issues at some point. Well, and, and if, it, if it is disillable, there's a lot to suggest that it was about sex. Yeah, exactly. But not sex, again, it's not sex in the way that he enjoyed it, sex in the way that it was about power sure. that gave him sexual gratification. Yeah, that's true. Um, and we'll get to that later because uh, he, he's a fascinating dude. I just want to dive in. With or, with or without, I know. You're excited. <laughs> I am excited. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's just go back a little. Yeah. June 30th, Nina Nichols, right. Helen Blake, two people found. Yep. August 19th, so that's so we, a couple months later. Right, so we went from two weeks and then a week, and then, or two weeks, two days, and the same day, and now there's about a seven or eight week span. Yes. Um, a lot of people would suggest, use that as a suggestion that this may or may not have been the same person. Right. Uh, I think now we know a lot more about the serial killer profiles, and what what we know now is that there are were likely triggers in most serial killers' life that, you know, either stopped them or started them from continuing this, uh -huh. you know, whatever they were doing. Um, you know, BTK is a particular one, and, and you know, I mean, he was dormant for quite a while. Mm -hmm. You know, so if, again, we'll talk about DeSalvo and how those triggers has sort of aligned with this timeline, um, and it could make sense. But I think that we can't just assume because this wasn't, a, a, you know, a straight curve up, you know, that in the way that it escalated or that there was stalling in between the victims that it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, just one person. I think the nature of the crimes, you know, I mean, and a lot of the information that the media had about the cases, you know, of course, thank God the police were sort of smart in the way that they conveyed that message and they tried to keep some of that information private because there's a lot of specificity mm -hmm. around the aftermath, you know, and the way that he positioned these victims. And not many people would have known that. And that's not something you can guess unless you would have known. Unless you would have been there, unless you would have seen it or been the person doing it, you wouldn't have been able to guess these types of details. No, not at all. And we'll get to what may or may not have come out in the confession. So after the seven or eight week break, the very next day after Ida's, uh, Ida was found, Jane Sullivan a 65-year-old woman, was found in her bathroom, strangled by her own nylons, and uh, she was found on August 20th, but it was estimated she had been there for a week, so murdered around August 13th. And when she was found, she was found in the bathtub on her hands and knees, and her head was under this faucet. Oh, God. So Jane's 67 years old. So from a timeline perspective, Jane could have been killed before Ida Erga because Ida was found the day before Jane, but not necessarily killed in that order. Exactly. So let's just clarify. Jane Sullivan also was in Dorchester, which is a different area, mm -hmm. different part of uh, Boston. And I think Jane Sullivan was the one who uh, it was said that she was, you know, a very classy lady. And again, you know, people who spoke about her we're really surprised that she would open a door for anyone, yeah. you know, when she wasn't fully clothed and, you know, had her dentures in and had her face done and had her curlers out or whatever. I mean, this was a time where it was a lot more conservative time and, like, actually that was true. Women just didn't go out and they were, they were fully made up. You didn't answer the door. You didn't go to the grocery store in your pajamas like people do now. So there was another pause for about three and a half months. 
and we had two quick ones again, but now the Strangler was hunting different people. Uh, a couple of ladies in their 20s. First, it was 21-year-old Sophie Clark. Uh, she was a young African-American student who never dated, was very independent, uh, she was very sure of herself, and to what you were just saying before, not very trusting of other people, and always took great precaution when she was out and about alone, and I think she lived alone as well. Yeah. Uh, and she, it was found that she was sexually assaulted before she was strangled, similar to Emma that we've seen before, and again, she was strangled with her nylons. Which I find to be kind of weird because nylon so nylons back in the day are not like nylons are now um our pantyhose are now and mm -hmm. that there's a lot of stretch to pantyhose oh yeah nylons back in the day there was no stretch really tight yeah uh -huh. i mean they were just literally like silk stockings sure. so they were you could you know they didn't stretch as much but they were also fairly pliable so you would have to really 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 pull hard and i think that's what happened in these circumstances a lot of times the detectives when they talked about these different crime scenes they said that they actually couldn't see the nylon. They could only see the bow because it was so deep within wow, the, their skin. Wow, that's incredible. Which and also weird looking. I did see. I did read that. Now that you say that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You would have had to pull really hard, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. And it must have taken a while. And you know, then you've got and you need incredible sort of... leverage to be able to do that. Yeah. And you know, as we'll talk about a little later, you know, peppering in some DeSalvo information. But you know, Albert DeSalvo was a strong guy. Oh, he yeah. was not a, um, you know, he was not a meek person. So, you know, if as we try to sort of correlate these, you know, situations with a strangler and with DeSalvo, this is one of those areas where, you know, he certainly could have done these crimes. He could have committed them. Certainly. And now this is also the first time, at least that I found, that after uh, Sophie was found, a neighbor came forward and said, a man knocked on my door and insisted that he was here to paint my apartment and he was sent by the super, but I didn't believe him and didn't let him in. You know, uh, well, uh, apparently, uh -huh. that was one of the DeSalvo MO. Okay. You know, oh, right, right. He, you know, again, let's sidebar a bit, talk about DeSalvo and how this may correlate. He was a con man. He would, he had, you know, he'd been found and tried and convicted of, crimes or he had actually gotten into people's houses. Uh -huh. This was one of those similarities to what he was doing as the green man. Um, uh, it was the green man rapist really, because right. he didn't kill anybody as right. the green man, but he, he was known as that because he would wear green coveralls and it made him look like, you know, he was official and he would say all kinds of things. He was coming in as a painter and he would bring swatches in and say, Hey, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to do you a favor. You can pick your own color. Let me in and you can look at the swatches. I mean, he was just kind of a bullshit artist, but he was really good. He at was it. really good at it. Yeah. yeah. Or he'd say, you know, my, the super sent in, super sent me in because there's a gas leak, you know, and he'd scare these women. That's likely the only way he got in was he would probably figure out, you know, at what level he needed to sort of lie. And then he would, you know, sort of put people in a position where they couldn't not not let him not let him in because they'd be in danger. Right. So uh, that was, you know, again, really similar. Another thing about the Salvo, you know, sort of to try not to digress, but to sort of throw in, the Salvo was also known um, as the, um, the the measuring man. Yes. And again. Here's a guy who spent a, quite a bit of time um, get, trying to get himself close to women, get into their apartments, uh, 
potentially have sex with them, you know, against their will and uh, sometimes, you know, you know, absolutely consensual. So I think, I think once we get through the, and I know we're digressing a lot because there's a lot to uncover here, but I think once we get through here, we'll jump backwards a little bit to talk about DeSalvo and his dalliances leading up to what yes. would become most likely the Boston Strangler. Yes, definitely. Um, but I do want to say there are, there's a lot of overlap between this oh, timeline sure. and between DeSalvo's timeline. Yes. Um, and a lot of, like I said, a lot of the things that he was doing and perpetrating in other areas, um, was very similar to this. So, Keep in mind, you know, keep an open mind. Uh, we'll try to keep the surprise. If you haven't seen the thousands of documentaries out there, you know, some new information has come to light. Uh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, December 31st, New Year's Eve, 1962. Patricia Bissett was found raped and strangled in her bed with her covers pulled all the way up to her chin like she was hiding. Uh, she was, I think, found by a co-worker who thought, found it was strange that she hadn't been to work that day and, uh, called police and the detectives found her. Got it. And go ahead. No, no. Uh, I was just going to say, and at this point, of course, there was a, a, a Boston wide manhunt underway. Uh, all, pretty much all police off duty officers were called in and, uh, there was no sleep for the weary, and at this point, all uh, known sex offenders, I don't know if there's a sex offender registry in the 60s, but all known sex offenders were brought in and questioned uh, as, of course, trying to determine who was responsible for these heinous crimes. And just to be clear, uh, Albert DeSavo was not on that list. Correct. The other thing I want to call out here is we're going through um, the number seven and number eight victim, Sophie Clark and Patricia Bissett, is that at the time, this really threw the police off and threw the, um, you know, the community off because we had gone from a much older demographic that the Boston Strangler was targeting to now 20-year-olds and 23-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And um, it appeared to be more sexual than the prior. And that could have been for a lot of reasons. Um, but, you know, some would say that that's a discrepancy that, you know, would would make it seem like there, there's more than one killer. So Boston kind of felt a little bit of a reprieve and actually thought things were getting back to normal in the spring of 1963 until uh, March of that year. 68-year-old Mary Brown was found strangled. I don't actually have a date or many details for Mary. Do you? She was found on Saturday, March 9th, 1963. Okay. Uh-huh. So, you know, a few months after Patricia Bissett, three months. Right. Two months, Two and three and a half, months, right. yeah. Um, she was found beaten to death in her apartment. Oh, she I did was, see that. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, she was also strangled and raped. So it appears that, um, you know, trying to, killing Mary Brown may have been more challenging than the others. It, it sounded like when, with the other, um, victims, they were usually surprised by hit being hit over the back of the head or being knocked out ahead of time. Then DeSalvo or not DeSalvo, but the Boston strangler mm -hmm. would, um, rape them, have their way with them. And then while they were still unconscious, that's when they would be strangled. So they were likely not, con hopefully not conscious hopefully. for any of the sexual assaults and certainly hopefully not conscious when they were, were killed. Now, I did find that what made this a little more unique is that this was 25 miles north of Boston. 
And hmm. I, I mentioned before that m it seemed like most were kind of centrally located in Boston. There was one that was a little bit in the outskirts in a suburb. This was pretty far outside. And we'll talk about a little bit at the end our theories or beliefs on whether or not this was one person, be it DeSalvo, or if it was multiple people. But I think this kind of this may lend towards the argument that maybe there were a couple copycats out there. Yep. All right. All right. So, Mary Brown, March 9th. Beverly Salmons. I hope I gotta say her name right. I think right. that's right. Be Beverly Salmons. She's 23. Her, she was found on Monday, May 6, 1963. So a couple months, three, what, two and a half, three months after Mary Brown. She's 23. Um, and she was found, again, you know, in her apartment. Same situation. I don't have a lot of details on the way that they found her. So I do have some more details about her. She was bound and gagged. Again, tied with a, well, I shouldn't say again, tied with a nylon scarf and stockings, and her mouth was covered, and she had a gag inside her mouth. Was this one of the ones that had their own panties stuffed in their I mouth? I believe that's correct, and she actually didn't die from being strangled. She was a professional singer, and uh, she was stabbed 22 times, 18 times in her breast, and it, they were stabbed in a circle to look like a bullseye, and four times in her neck. And the belief was that her throat and vocal cords were so strong that DeSalvo or the strangler couldn't strangle her to death and got frustrated and so stabbed her to death. That would make sense. I mean, strangling anyone without a muscular throat would yeah. be challenging. It's not just as easy as, you know, I mean, it takes a while. You're looking at them in the face unless you've covered them. I mean, it's, you know, you're there in that moment with them watching the the life, you know, just fall right out of these people. Yes. So it's, um, it's an incredibly intimate thing to do. Prior to this murder, I can't believe this is a thing. Again, we actually talked about it in the Ariel Castro one. Police were getting so frustrated, they decided to talk to a psychic or clairvoyant. <laughs> Don't talk to psychics, especially when you're trying to solve a crime. Yeah, it messes, uh, it really messes with the credibility. The psychic said that uh, he believed that it was a mental health patient who had escaped Boston State Hospital. <laughs> Face palm. Yeah, exactly. I, I hope they didn't spend too much time on that nonsense. I hope not. And what else is I find really interesting is that, you know, I mean, I've never been in a situation like this, but when you're strangling someone who's unconscious, I'm not sure how you're 100% sure that they're dead. I mean, I guess you could, like, put a mirror next to their face to see if they're breathing or whatever, but still, I mean, isn't there a chance that they may still be alive? I mean, I... Certainly, there are ways to check if they're still breathing, but if you in checking pulse and things like that. But if you don't do that, yeah, I would think so. I mean, I don't know how savvy this person was with checking people's pulses and ensuring that they were fully dead. I don't, but I don't know. Crazy. Yeah. All right. So, Beverly Salmons. We talked about her stabbed to death. Uh, then on Sunday, September eighth. So we're talking another four or five months later in 1963. Evelyn Corbin was found. She's aged 58. And she was found in her apartment on the first floor uh, in Salem. And she is definitely one who had underwear stuffed in her mouth. And there were also traces of semen uh, found in her mouth. Got it. And this is a consistent um, 
theme with the Boston Strangler. There are a few of the victims that were found in similar fashion and um, ultimately will sort of, I think that's the only real evidence that they found that, that the actual suspect had left behind and that will um, be helpful later. But in the moment and probably until the late, you know, I'd say 1990s and then into the 2000s up to 2013, um, you know, they consider there to be no real evidence in right. these cases. Right. Nothing that they could do anything about. No. Um, all right. So now we've got our number 11 victim, Evelyn Corbin. Next, Brittany? Uh, number 12, right around Thanksgiving 1963, Joanne Graff was raped and killed in the Lawrence part of Boston. Uh, again, neighbors reported seeing a man knocking on doors, trying to uh, get his way into their apartments, claiming that he was there to paint. Hmm. Well, I guess it's worked before, so might as well try it again. It's the, it's a, con everything about the Strangler, I shouldn't say everything, most things about the Strangler are very consistent. It's the same MO over yeah. and over, and more would come out during the investigation period also. Yes. I mean, obviously this, these were crimes of opportunity, but there was, there was, uh, there was planning behind it because again, you know, you had to make sure he, whoever it was had to make sure that the victims were going to be alone and there was time for him to do what he wanted to do to them. All right. Happy new year, January 4th, 1964. The Strangler's coup de gras. The final strangling is what it seemed to be. Uh, the final victim was Mary Sullivan and she was found by her two roommates. So here's a young woman who did not live alone uh, but she was found propped up sitting on her bed with her head tilted to the side. Uh, she was, uh, of course, deceased, and uh, she was strangled with a dark sock. And here we go again with, uh, be careful listening to this, raped with a broom handle. And if that's not sickening enough, the perpetrator placed a Happy New Year's card between her feet. Yes. And again, as with before in a couple of the victims, they they had actually, to make her, you know, genital area more prominent to whoever was walking in the door, they put a pillow underneath her. Oh, yeah. um, so again, it just, you know, really humiliating and, and undignified. Um, there was a point to this. There was, it, it wasn't just a, you know, a power thing. It wasn't just a, um, a sexual thing. You know, this was, this, this, this suspect was showing, showing off. He was showing that he had control of the he situations. He had the power. Yep. And apparently, you know, seems like that he also knew that he would likely not get caught. So the last thing I want to talk about before we really dive into DeSalvo, and we'll probably come back to discuss a lot of this thing, these things, uh, is the investigation into the, uh, the Boston Strangler. And at the time, uh, Edward Brooke was the first African, first and only African-American attorney general uh, who, who led the case here. And the Boston Strangler was one of the first examples of criminal profiling used in the United States. And the profile that they came up with for the Strangler was that of an adult male, early 30s, who is very neat and proper, and someone who is ordinarily, uh, who's, who's a relatively ordinary and usually gentle person, but has a penchant for outbursts of rage. And this was 
based, and I'm asking this as a question because yeah, I yeah. don't know. Sure. Was this based on, you know, some kind of psychological analysis or was this just, what, what was it based on? I think it was based on psych- psychological analysis. I think it was a kind of a, a precursor to what you would see from, like, the Mindhunter types, the FBI uh, trying to profile serial killers. It was an early test into similar criminals and modus operandi, trying to figure out or seeing patterns from previous crimes and the criminals that perpetrated them. And that's how they developed. So again, very psychological, like you said. Yeah. I mean, I would say I would agree with most of that. Yeah. Um, you know, they're obviously considering, you know, the the ability of this person to be able to get into these homes with these women without breaking in. Mm-hmm. So they must have appeared credible. Yeah. And they of must course. have they're not letting in, you know, some dirty old guy in their apartment. So they definitely were probably well kept and they appeared like they were, and I'm sure they sounded nice. And, you know, I mean, obviously they developed some trust with these people pretty quickly if they were going to let them into their apartment when they were alone. Definitely. Even back then, I mean, you know, it wasn't really proper for a woman to be alone with a man in that situation. No, definitely not. So there was some kind of, there was something going on. All right. So I don't know about you, but that is the extent of the information that I have. That's only about the Boston Strangler. The other details and the information I have is really more specific to Alberta Silva. Okay. The only thing I want to mention was, again, about the Attorney General, Evan Brooke. Um, he was the highest-ranking law enforcement um, officer in the state, and he started a task force to address this because it was so significant to the community and so important that this got resolved. Um, that case was or the task force was created in, on January 17, 1964. So right at the end of this the spree essentially right. yep um as far as we know there aren't any other um victims no you know, no other strangler stranglers. victims correct we essentially finished talking about the the boston strangler um certainly strongly alluded to and gave our impressions of albert DeSalvo being that guy uh, but I think we're probably going to call it here for the Boston Strangler, and uh, we will make this kind of sort of a two-parter because uh, ultimately the Strangler, per se, may or may not have been brought to justice, but we're going to discuss Albert DeSalvo at length in our next episode, who more or less is agreed that that's who he is. Yep, exactly. So uh, stay tuned, Scarlettos. We'll be back to share our thoughts on Albert Henry DeSalvo and his uh, participation in the Boston Strangler crimes. Mm-hmm.